0: We are turning in our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 11, and I invite you, if you uh, have a Bible or use the Pew Bible or your phones, to uh, turn with me to Mark 11 as well. We've spent the last month and a half working our way through Mark chapter 10, and if you've been with us, you know that we've seen Jesus return again and again to the themes of faith and discipleship. He's answered the question How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? Now as Jesus was addressing these themes throughout Mark 10, he was steadfastly working his way down south through Israel toward Jerusalem. And as we arrive at Mark 11, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Now, you know, if you've watched movies, how a, a good director in the beginning of a movie will sort of uh, set the scene. He'll move things along at a good clip, introducing the characters, helping us know what's happening. But then as you as you come to the climax, as you come to the real important moment in the movie, the director will slow things down and and you'll start to see every step. And, and every twitch of the eyebrow and every emotion as the, the key thing develops in real time in front of you. And Mark does something like that here because having spent 10 chapters talking about three years in Jesus' ministry, he's now going to spend six chapters on one week as we watch and see and listen to the words and actions of Jesus as he approaches the cross And so that's our our goal and our objective in the coming months. Now, Mark 11 itself can be divided into two parts. One part of Mark 11 shows Jesus coming into Jerusalem and his conflict with the leaders. The second part is the parable of the fig tree and its lesson. And we're going to address... Jesus' arrival in conflict with the leaders today, and we'll circle back to the fig tree next week. And that means I'm going to jump a little bit around in the chapter as I read today. But let's start with verse 1. Listen as we read God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat Now we're going to skip a few verses about the fig tree there, and we're going to go on to verse 15, where we read, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now skip down again past the fig tree to verse 27. we pick up there and read, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, "'By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them?' And Jesus said to them, "'I will also ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me.' And they discussed it with one another, saying, "'If we say from heaven,' he will say, "'Why then did you not believe him?' But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we thank you for your word, which is not merely a story, but it's true. It is what has happened and it's what you are telling us as your people. So be with us now. Help us to know you better through it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's a general pattern through history that conflicts can lie under the surface, sort of festering for a while, until at a a moment in time they suddenly burst in front of us and into our consciousness. Take, for example, the relationship between the United States and Japan. For decades, things were going downhill. In 1921, uh, an international treaty limited the size of Japan's navy. And in the 1930s, the United States opposed Japan's uh, military aggression. By 1940, the United States was halting exports and freezing Japan's assets and then finally halting all commercial and financial ties whatsoever. But I would guess that for most Americans, maybe they read about these things in the newspaper, but most were probably not overly aware of them or overly paying attention to them, or if they were, it was something happening way over there until it wasn't on December 7th of 1941, and Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And all of a sudden, this issue that was sort of under the surface burst front and center in the entire consciences of a nation. Well, the events of Mark chapter 11 feel something like that in the life of Jesus, because for three years, Jesus has largely been up north in Capernaum and Galilee and While, of course, the the scribes and Pharisees had sent delegations up to interact with him, much of Israel, he's known more by reputation than by experience. In fact, through this time, Jesus was telling people, don't tell others about the miracles that I have done. He revealed himself to the disciples and then said, don't tell others what you have learned. But now in this passage, with the entire nation of Israel descending on Jerusalem for the feast in the equivalent of an entire nation's worth of Black Friday crowds, Jesus walks in, finds a donkey and rides into Jerusalem, enters the temple and begins overthrowing tables and chairs. And Matthew tells us in his gospel that when this happened, the entire city was stirred up asking, who is this? Now, some of the crowd say, well, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But the events of this chapter, Jesus' actions are proclaiming something more than that. See, his ride into the city and his focus on the temple are specifically intended to publicly announce, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior. And that's the main point of this passage this morning. Now, we want to look at this point as we see Jesus declare that he is the Messiah and the Savior. And we'll unpack it in a couple of ways. But let's start with verses 1 through 11, where the king arrives at the temple. As the chapter opens, Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem. You notice, of course, that he doesn't just march right in. He goes first to Bethany. And throughout this week, leading up to the cross, we find that Jesus returns to Bethany each night. He's clearly staying with friends there, maybe even Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, we're not sure. And he tells two of his disciples to go on to Bethpage, which was a village just slightly closer to Jerusalem and right by the Mount of Olives, and and to find a donkey. Now, Jesus clearly demonstrates his sovereignty and his perfect control over every detail of life, When his instructions turn out exactly like he said for the disciples. but I can imagine the disciples walking back and thinking, well, boy, Jesus must know what he's doing and talking about because everything turned out exactly like he said. But what's the deal with the donkey? Because if you think about it, Jesus has just walked 105 miles from Caesarea Philippi to Bethpage and he wants to ride a donkey for the last mile and a half? And what's the, what's the deal here? But of course, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't tired for the last 1% of the journey, nor was he trying to set up some grand entry. After all, he was riding a donkey, not a horse and a chariot. And his disciples had to throw some coats on, on the, the back of the donkey because uh, there was no saddle or equipment, and it was a borrowed donkey at that. Now, this is is not a glorious entry. It's a humble one. That fits who Jesus is, though. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He was the one who proclaimed that he was gentle and lowly and came to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus was not just humble, though. More to the point, Jesus is doing this intentionally to fulfill prophecy about him. See, God had told his people that they would know when the king, the promised one, was coming with salvation, when he came to them humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 had proclaimed this. And Jesus fulfills this prophecy here, intentionally saying to the people, this is who I am. I am the king coming with salvation demonstrating God's faithfulness to fulfill his word. But it wasn't just the fact that he rode on a donkey, it was also the route that Jesus took. See, Zechariah, in addition to saying that the king would come humble and on a donkey, in Zechariah 14.4, it also tells us that on the day of the Lord, he would come and arrive on the Mount of Olives. Now, we don't have time to go into all the, the implications for that as far as Jesus' return. But what we do know is that in Jesus' day, multiple rabbis and the historian Josephus all expected the Messiah to come from Mount Olives, that he would appear there. And so, when Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, in a colt to full of a donkey, he was fulfilling both Old Testament prophecy and contemporary messianic expectations. And so, it's not surprising at all that the people respond by hailing him as the Messiah. They say, Hosanna, which means, oh, save. And then they quote Psalm 118, which was a psalm all about the day of the Lord's salvation, saying, Blessed is he who can, comes in the name of the Lord. According to Matthew's gospel, the crowds called Jesus the Son of David, which was the name given to the, the coming king. Mark says that the people identify his kingdom with the arrival of, of David's kingdom. And so the people get what Jesus is saying. This is who I am. And they proclaim it by quoting Psalm 118. But but Jesus isn't done yet. He's got another prophecy to fulfill, another way to proclaim who he is. Because notice that Jesus doesn't just ride into the city. Mark, in verse 11, makes a particular note. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. And it's significant. In fact, every single day of this final week of his life, Jesus goes to the temple. And things happen in the temple. Why is that important? comes down to prophecy again. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. That passage where God said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Of course, John the Baptist had done that, preparing the way for Jesus. But then Malachi 3, 1 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. In other words, people of Israel... If you're on the lookout for the Messiah who's going to bring salvation, where would you expect to find him? In the temple. He's going to arrive in the day of the Lord at the temple. So so here's Jesus. Jesus goes down from Mount of Olives on a donkey into the temple, showing the people, I'm fulfilling sign after sign that the Lord had given you, that I'm the one you're looking for. I am the Lord, the Messiah. Come with salvation. That's what the, these first 11 verses tell us. Now, the first 11 verses do end a bit anticlimactically. The king is coming. The Savior is here. He comes to the temple. He looks around and leaves. Maybe some of the disciples were like, seriously? You know, we waited all this time. This happens and that's where we are. But, but let's move on now to verses 15 to 19. because so Jesus is in the temple again. And here we see the king cleansing the temple. Now I want want us to get a little bit of the, the scene here. The temple was a huge complex that dominated the city of Jerusalem. In the center of it was a building, the holy place. And of course at the center of the holy place was the holy of holies. So you have this building, the holy place, and right around it was a small court... It was the court of Israel, and it was for circumcised males in Israel only. And then right adjacent to that was the court of women, which was for Israelite women only. And so right at the center is this complex with the holy place and the court for men and women. But then all around that was a third court, the court of the Gentiles, which was the place that anyone from the nations could come to. But this was a huge court. It stretched three football fields wide and five football fields long. It covered 35 acres. And it was in this court that the animals were bought and sold to travelers and foreigners wishing to offer sacrifice. And it's in this 35-acre area that Jesus comes in and begins turning over the tables and chairs. Now given the sheer size of the area, it's highly unlikely that Jesus literally brought the entire place to a halt. But he did interrupt the sales. He interrupted the process. In the process, he he attracted the attention of the crowds who, who came and gathered around him. And he confronted what was happening in their worship of God. Jesus, again, is playing the role of God's king here. Think about how his actions are an echo of those past faithful kings in Israel, Jehoash and Josiah, who, who led Israel by cleaning up the temple and restoring worship in the temple and its courts. But Jesus says the significance of his actions are are particularly in light of two Old Testament passages which he quotes. The first one is from Isaiah 56, which is particularly interesting because Isaiah 56 was all about the Gentiles and the foreigners being able to pray to the Lord. Isaiah 56, 7 says, in the, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer." For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. I mean, just sit back and reflect for a minute what an amazing promise that is. It was already beyond expectation that God would come to us as human beings who had rebelled against him and lived life our own way instead of his, and that he would take one nation, Israel, and give them a place where he could meet with them, and that he would hear their prayers And show them his steadfast love and salvation. That was already incredible. But for God to then open a door through Israel for all peoples and nations to come to him. And to pray and to find the hope of salvation. That is mercy and grace beyond fathoming. That's a John 3.16 love of God for the world on display here. But the Jews had turned God's promise on its head. Because the temple, which God had intended to be a house of prayer for all nations, they had turned into a money-making scheme at the expense of the nations. And so, as people came in and, and had to pay money which profited the Jewish leaders in order to offer a sacrifice to God, Jesus acts to restore God's purposes. Ironically, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came... He would drive out the Gentiles and restore the prominence of Israel and their purity. And instead, here comes the Messiah to restore Israel's witness to the Gentiles, that the floodgates of salvation might be opened to them, that they too might know the Lord just as God had promised. But then Jesus adds a second reference. He says, But you have made my temple a den of robbers. And this is a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where the Lord was condemning Israel for offering sacrifices in the temple while at the same time oppressing the sojourner, stealing, committing adultery, and worshiping false gods. And Jesus' point here is clear. Just as in the days of Jeremiah, you cannot consider this temple a sacred and holy place, nor your worship to be pleasing to God when you've turned this very temple into an economic machine at the expense of the poor, when you are disobeying and not offering genuine worship to the Lord. But there's good news, because the king has come to his temple, and he's cleansing his temple. And so the door is opening again for salvation and true worship to be restored for those who seek it. I want to pause here for just a minute. Would you pause with me and notice how easy it is for our worship of God to slip into empty routine, buried under worldly interests? Because I have to think, I'm sure that God's people, Israel, didn't wake up one day after returning from exile and coming back to the temple and say, boy, we're back in the temple. What a great opportunity to make some money. That wasn't their first thought. No, this is the process of the years. As the temple feasts ceased to become an expression of their love for the Lord and their obedience to the Lord. First, they became a routine. Then they became an empty routine. And then it became an opportunity for financial gain for some. That's the process of how things can go over the course of years. But, but this isn't just a, something that was true for Israel. The same is true for the church as well. I've often appreciated the music of Michael Card. Some of you may know Michael Card's music, and a member of our our church reminded me of his song about this episode in Scripture, his song titled, The Lamb is a Lion. And Card sings this, he says, The lamb is a lion who's roaring with rage at the empty religion that's filling their days. And I wonder whether we might consider this process and how generation after generation are at risk of seeing empty religion sneak into our worship. Just consider our own, own country, for instance. Our country began when the pilgrims crossed an entire ocean so that they might find a place where they could worship God freely. But a hundred years later, in the early 1700s, what was the state of the church? Well, the state of the church was dead, it was losing membership. Those who came did so out of routine. In fact, we know that many who were ministers at that time might not have even known Christ. They were doing it as a career and a job. But into that dead formalism came the first great awakening in which preaching about our sin and our desperate need of a Savior and on the beauty of Christ who died for us and shed his blood for our souls, it renewed the zeal of the church. But guess what happened in the next hundred years? And then guess what happened in the next hundred years? This pattern continues throughout history. And the warning for us is that we cannot presume that on our own, our hearts will continue to worship God as we ought. And so it's so easy for us. Kids come to church because you have to. Adults go to church because you're expected to maybe this mere routine is the best case scenario and at worst church just becomes a another avenue for social or or political or financial advantage for some and so the the question for us this morning is why are you here this morning why are you here at church is church just a system or an institution we participate in is it just a routine or something people do J.C. Ryle asks, do we enter this house of God to give him a mere formal service while our hearts are still full of the world and of ourselves? Or, Or might we be conscious this morning of coming into the presence of a holy God? Are we aware that when we are here, we are going to come face to face with the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sake of our sins? Are we here to pray and to worship? Is, is the glory of God our highest aim this morning? Is Christ and his salvation our greatest treasure? Is worship and prayer to God our greatest delight? Amen. You know, in that song of Michael Card's, he, he ended by singing this. He said, After Christ cleansed the temple, the noise and confusion gave way to his word. At last, sacred silence so God could be heard. I wonder where we are this morning. May we be here for prayer and for worship. May our worship not be undermined by disobedience or distraction to the Lord. And may we find in our hearts and in our minds this morning a sacred silence so that God could be heard. Well, Here is the Lord, the King, come to cleanse his temple. But let's end by looking at one more section. Skip down to verse 27. We've seen the king enter his temple. We've seen the king cleanse his temple. Now we see the king's authority challenged in the temple. Verse 27, we're right back in the temple again, walking in the temple, and the chief priests and scribes and elders come up, and they have a question for him. Now, this is just the first in a whole series of questions that they're going to ask Jesus over the course of the next chapter, all trying to undermine Jesus and his authority. And they say... By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, Jesus, what right do you have to do what you just did? That's their question. Now, at first glance, when Jesus responds by saying, well, let me ask you a question first, we might think, well, Jesus, you're just dodging their question. Why not just answer them? That's not what's happening here, because Jesus is going to ask them a question, and if the chief priests and leaders will answer it, they will have the answer they want to their question as well. Jesus asked, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Will you remember for a minute how John's baptism applies to Jesus and what John's baptism tells us about Jesus? Because remember, Jesus himself was baptized by John. And when he was baptized by John, that was the beginning and the inauguration of his public ministry as our Savior. And, And when John baptized Jesus, that was the moment a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when he was baptized, John had declared that I am only baptizing with water, but this one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it was at the time when John baptized Jesus that he had looked at the crowds and said, this is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And it was, it was when he baptized Jesus that John said, see, this is the one I was telling you about. The one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie. You see, if John's ministry was from heaven and was God ordained, that tells us who Jesus is and what he's here to do. It tells us that he is the son of God here to take away the sins of the world. He is the one to be worshiped and glorified. It would tell us that Jesus' authority is from none other than God himself. But the religious leaders find themselves in a bind. And will you notice that the religious leaders are not in a bind because they're trying to decide the correct answer to Jesus' question. They're not seeking the truth at all. They're not trying to find out what the right answer is. They're trying to find out how they protect themselves and their interests. They don't want to say John's ministry was from heaven, not because it may or may not be true or false, but because they know if they do, Jesus will say, well, that gives you the answer you want. And if that is true, why didn't you believe him? But they don't want to say it's from men because they're afraid of the people. And so they say, well, Jesus, we just don't know. Again, not we don't know for a lack of information, But I want you to to notice two things about the leader's response here and take warning from them. The first, right away, note the fear of man that guides the Pharisees' response. The primary reason for their cop-out answer is, according to the text, because they were afraid of the people. In other words, despite their authority and their position, they were hungry for the respect and admiration of the people and are not willing to do anything that might lead to opposition or rejection. And you know, a rejection fear is just one category of the fear of man. You know, they won't like me. They won't accept me. They won't want me. They'll reject me. Pride and shame is another category of the fear of man. I'm afraid that being exposed in my failures and inadequacies will shame me. Or I desire and I need and I want the good opinion and honor of others. Potential harm is another category of fear of man. They might actually hurt me, whether physically or they might hurt my position or my career or my chances for success. All of these are different examples of being afraid of men, but they're all rooted in the same thing. They're all rooted in the fear of what others will do to me or think of me. Now, I think every one of us should probably confess that we wrestle with these things we wrestle with the fear of others and how they will respond to us. I mean, I'll be the first to confess the thoughts that bombard my head. Well, if I say that, what will people think of that? Or, well, I know what they think, so I can't do that. They're gonna be really angry at that. Or, you know, what, what are people thinking about how I do this? Or, man, I can't believe I put my foot in my mouth like that. What must be people thinking uh, about me? These things are all around us, aren't they? And these are the fears of Man that lead us to respond in ways that are wrong and foolish. And so there are so many contexts where each one of us needs to remember, I am not here to perform before others. I am not here to earn the good opinion of others because that always proves fickle and worthless in the end. The only person's opinion that matters is the Lord's. And if I am trusting in him, he has shed his own son's blood to secure his steadfast love for me. And so I can be secure in him. That's our security. That's our solid foundation. So let the scribes and the leader's example be a warning to us to beware of the fear of man and the foolishness it leads to. But I also want us to be aware and be warned by the scribes' strategy. See, they're caught between two options they don't like And they don't like the conclusions of where those things lead. And so they go non-committal. And they say, we don't know. But we aren't sure or we don't know is a classic response that can sound humble and honorable. It refuses to box me into black and white categories, perhaps. It allows room for me to nuance things. It recognizes the limits of my knowledge, perhaps. And... I don't know is a very legitimate response when there's not enough information to know. It's a very legitimate response if it's sparking us to seek to know the truth and to pursue pursue that truth. But I don't know is not a fair or legitimate answer when the information is there and we don't like the conclusion it leads to. And this answer is not fair for the leaders in this passage. It is not a fair answer when Jesus has given them proof of his divinity in miracle after miracle after miracle for three years. This answer is not a fair answer when God has affirmed Jesus' identity at his baptism and again on the Mount of Transfiguration. This answer is not a fair answer when Jesus has specifically and literally fulfilled every prophecy that was made of him from hundreds of years before. This answer is not a legitimate answer when Jesus goes to the point of the cross, shedding his blood to redeem us from our sins and to meet our greatest need. This answer is not a fair answer when God then proves and demonstrates who Jesus is by raising him from the dead showing to each of us that he is the Lord of all and the judge before whom we will stand. This answer is not a fair answer when Jesus then invites every single one of us who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest for our souls, to find mercy in our hour of need and eternal life in him. When God has given us all of that, I don't know is not the right response the right response is to come to him and trust such a savior. I admit, such a commitment to the truth of who Christ is requires an acknowledgement of who he is. It requires an acknowledgement of everything Jesus has been proclaiming in this chapter. That I am the king the promised one, the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah who came down the Mount of Olives into the temple and fulfilled prophecy. And yes, recognizing and submitting to his authority will change our lives. We cannot continue to live for ourselves if he is who he says he is. But such a commitment does not lead, to, lead us to be vulnerable as submission so often does in this world. No, submitting to Jesus in faith leads us straight into the full and free grace of God, which offers us forgiveness of sin and the hope of redemption in his love and eternal life with him forever through the death of Jesus Christ. And who could possibly commit to anything better than that? Let's pray. Father, Jesus in this passage demonstrates who he is fulfilling prophecy, acting with authority, telling us that he has been sent from heaven and is the one that God has been promising, the one who would come with salvation. Father, I pray that we would not remain at a distance from him. Would we not hold Jesus at arm's length? Would we not say, well, I just can't decide? Father, if we don't know enough about him, may we pursue that knowledge of him. May we pursue him to understand the truth. And then, Father, may we submit to him and commit to this claim that he is our Savior. May we trust in him and rest in him by faith that we might find forgiveness and salvation and eternal life through him. May that be true of us this morning, Father. And may it all be to the glory and the praise of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.